Hello and welcome to this first Nuri On Your Mind podcast of 2023. Here in the studio are I, Johan Trockmé, and Victor Sonnebeck. Glad to be here. Always a pleasure, Victor, to be in the studio. And this time we will talk about something unpleasant, um, something that many of us had probably almost forgotten about, uh, which is inflation. It's uh, safe to say that there hasn't really been a lack of interesting topics to to talk about in in, in, uh, recent years. And and this, uh, especially given the the times that we're in, is of course uh, uh, not one of the boring ones either. Yeah, tune in for a bit of Nuri on your mind discomfort given such a topic as this is. Uh, But I guess inflation could hardly be more topical. I mean, central banks have been struggling for quite some time, for a decade, going to ever greater extremes to generate even a total level of inflation. Uh, And now we are in a world where where inflation is uh, top of mind for, for most people. And I thought a good way to start off might be to offer a little bit of perspective with a personal anecdote. Um, I am actually old enough to have been alive when inflation was a real problem uh, here in Sweden, where we are now. Um, in 1990, I was a teenager, and around that time, inflation in Sweden was running at an annual rate of about 10%. I realize it's going to sound strange when I say that, although we are back there now, pretty much. But that was the rate of inflation at the time. I remember that back then, the rate of tax on income from capital was 30%. And from my own experience, depositing money uh, on a savings account in a bank earned a 10% interest. So the problem was when you did the math that in real terms, you actually had a negative return on 3% per annum from parking your money in a savings account in a bank because inflation ate up more than uh, the, the yield that you actually generated. Not the sexiest kind of return. To put it mildly. Not a very compelling case then for, for people to, to actually save money. And this was a few years before the, the financial crisis in Sweden. A couple of years before the local Swedish very, very deep financial crisis, which was also preceded by a credit boom. Um, And another interesting part of this anecdote is that the Swedish government at the time seemed a bit puzzled that people were not saving enough money. The savings rate in the Swedish economy was very, very low. People were just borrowing and consuming. So the government decided to introduce a policy solution, which was actually a forced savings scheme. For someone a bit younger than you, Iwan, uh, I think you will, will have to, to shed some light on this and, and, and explain to me what uh, what this forced uh, savings scheme actually means. It is an interesting policy choice. Uh, it's not even an order from the government, but the government just basically instructed the central bank in Sweden to deduct uh, a certain percentage of everyone's salary at source. And that money was taken from people's salary and deposited in a locked account in the central bank. And there it earned a, shall we say, pretty underwhelming interest rate. And that way the government made people save some of their salary. Uh, so so that's the way it actually worked. The money was repaid a few years after. You don't really hear much about this Polish initiative today. I think one way of arguing around that might be that it wasn't exactly an astounding success in terms of what results it achieved. And I think part of it is, at least I strongly suspect, that the transaction costs for doing all this uh, probably far exceeded any sort of benefits from whatever boost to the savings rate in the economy uh, was achieved by um, by this scheme. But it's an interesting um, personal experience. Yeah, it sounds like uh, quite an interesting policy choice as well. Quite uh, inventive, if you, if you want to be a bit nice about it. Uh, but but uh, yeah, with, with that anecdote, why are we talking about inflation today, Johan? What is the purpose of our most recent report? An entirely fair question. And I think it goes back to what we usually try to do with our Nordeo and Mine reports, 
which take on these kinds of topics, which is that it's something that we all hear about. A lot of people probably have opinions, views, expectations on it, but what we wanted was to offer a reasonably, hopefully, light-hearted overview of the basics of inflation. A chance for all of those out there who are not macroeconomic experts to be able to just zoom out for a few moments and find out what is inflation, how does it work, what is it that drives inflation, why is it a problem, and how do we try to control it. And uh, I guess ultimately doing what we at least try to do in every report, boiling it down to what does this mean for uh, for our corporate clients? How, how should you think about this? Or, or at least uh, uh, what could be the key points uh, within this topic? Exactly. And to start with, it might be useful to just take a quick historical glimpse at how inflation has affected us in the past. And what most people probably think of who are, as I am, old enough to to be reasonably aware of it, is the, the 1970s, which was from an economic point of view, from an inflation point of view, a pretty sad period because in the 1970s we saw a decade or more of stagflation, uh, a combination of inflation with uh, stagnating economic growth. And that was when OECD inflation almost trebled from two subsequent oil supply shocks. And then there was a big cyclical upturn for the OECD economies in the 1980s, but it took until the early 1990s for inflation to fall back down to the sort of pre-oil shock levels of around 5% again. And what happened thereafter from the 1990s is, among other things, that we saw this massive globalization of corporate supply chains and disciplined central banks which had explicit inflation targets which have worked towards those and this has kept inflation very very low. And uh, with these uh, inflation targets, uh, I, I guess you could argue for, for most central banks that inflation actually got uh, got too low. So most central banks in advanced economies have inflation targets of, of around 2%. It, it varies a bit, uh, but most of them have, have a target of around 2%. And after the global financial crisis of, of uh, 2008, uh, it fell below that. Uh, and inflation has remained quite low for, for quite a long time. And before we go into what has happened, I think... On this notion of the basics of inflation, it might sound like a sort of silly question to ask, but I think it has to be asked in how we are approaching this topic, at least. And, and, and then the question would be, what is inflation and how do we actually measure it? So basically what you try to capture with uh, the inflation measure uh, is the the uh, change in general price levels of uh, goods and services. So we're not talking about people you know, starting to purchase different things, for example, switching out um, some uh, tomato for, for ecological uh, alternative, uh, but rather we're talking about the actual price increases for a kind of standard basket of goods, if you will, uh, that a person in a country uh, would typically uh, purchase. So, so just as an example, uh, naturally then it differs depending on country, because in some countries you have a different uh, basket of, uh, of goods. So typically we, we talk about the CPI uh, as the, the, uh, this uh, basket of goods and services where you weigh different goods and services then uh, to, to uh, calculate the total uh, total inflation. Uh, so it could be anything from, from you know, a carton of milk or it could be your, your housing cost or your electricity cost, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people have been painfully aware about uh, when it comes to, to price increases. Uh, and then, as I said, what you do then is that you weigh all of these these uh, price changes for different goods together to a, a final uh, CPI figure. And typically what you look at is the year-on-year -year change. So basically how much more expensive or how much uh, less expensive uh, has the typical basket of goods and services become in the last year. And the CPI, which stands for the Consumer Price Index, is very, very granular. It, it, it actually 
the granularity goes down to items such as milk, bus tickets, motorcycles, shoes. It, it's fascinating. Pet uh, vaccinations or, or movie tickets or, or uh, anything you can think of, really. Or, or, or the passport fee payable to police when, when, when you apply for a new passport, for example. So, so loads and loads of different individual items in there. But to get a sense of what drives it, the three biggest categories of items which are included in the Consumer Price Index are housing, food, and transport. And those three are together more than half the total weight of the index. When prices change is there in those areas, that's when things really move in terms of what happens to the inflation rate. Uh, and we can just mention, uh, as, as an interesting, I don't know if you call it anecdote, but example of, of how these things are, are measured. So in the report, we included an interview with with uh, Statistics Sweden, where uh, it was explained to us that it used to be that people from Statistics Sweden uh, ran around stores pretty much, uh, you know, with, with uh, pa- paper and pencil and just noting down prices. Uh, but uh, we've come a long way uh, in society as, uh, as a whole, but also for Statistics Sweden. So, so now a lot of the data collection is done uh, automatically, so, so via... Via uh, computers and, and, and uh, yeah, data services uh, where, where, where companies provide them with actual transactions. Um, so I guess we can start jumping into the kind of the, the notion of inflation and why is it bad and what might be the problems or, or, or even what, what might be, uh, be good with inflation. Uh, and we can just start off with, uh, with inflation and speaking of price changes being troublesome uh, because it makes long-term planning and budgeting uh, quite difficult uh, for households and, and, and businesses. Just imagine that you're trying to, to budget what, what is my business going to cost or what am I going to spend for my household uh, during the year. And then prices are, are moving up or down rapidly and changing and it, it creates quite a big, uh, big problem. Uh, and then the other one, quite practical problem, is that, that uh, you have something called menu costs. If prices are changing rapidly, it uh, becomes very difficult uh, to keep up to speed uh, with what prices should you actually be, be quoting your customers. I mean, if you all of a sudden see that, that the prices that we have on our menu make it so that we actually don't even, uh, might even not break even, then of course you have to, to update your menu. And, and uh, the more volatile prices are, uh, the more often you will need to do this. But then the, the semi-provocative question here, you want: uh, is there anything good with inflation? Which, again, I think is a fair question to ask. And, and, and the way to answer it, I think, is to start by just pointing out that inflation as such, as a concept, is not a bad thing. Pretty much all economists would agree that a certain level of inflation is inherent in the economy. It's part of the economy evolving and growing. What is a problem is when inflation is very high or when it is volatile and unpredictable, or both those in combination. That causes big problems. Inflation, if you look at potential good things about it, can actually potentially be helpful in order to soften the blow to unemployment when there is a downturn in demand in that inflation can allow real wages for people who work or are employed to fall. It's usually pretty tricky to get uh, employees to accept reductions in their salaries. Uh, but if there is a real reduction, that means that your salary might stay unchanged or even rise a bit, whereas the purchasing power will decline because of inflation. And, and that is a way of helping the economy adjust without necessarily a lot of people having to lose their jobs. Uh, you could also argue similarly when it comes to purchasing behavior. You mentioned earlier, Victor, that there, there's some substitution out there. When we have goods which are reasonably similar, give us a similar outcome when we consume them, or services for that matter, we can choose one over the other. If one gets more expensive and the other one stays right. more attractively priced. And if there is a nominal 
increase in pricing, well, then there is room for a certain good to rise more in price and the other good, which might be a close substitute, rising a bit less, and then we can switch our consumption to that. But just like for salaries for employees, there is more inertia, there is a bigger threshold for reducing prices for goods and services. It's easier to let one rise more and the other less. But then, then speaking of letting one of them rise more and, and the other one less, I mean, just on the, the taking it at face value, it, it sounds quite easy that, that inflation is just, you know, changes in prices. But if I then ask you the question, what, what is it that actually drives the price increases? Are we, are we talking about, you know, a, a greedy grocer just uh, increasing the prices and everything he has and trying to corner his market to make more money? Or, or is there something else at play here? That's clearly what we would always suspect. Of course, uh, of course. But in, in, if you look at the whole economy rather than individual greedy grocers, if, if you ask the economists, uh, what drives inflation, the answer you will get depends on who you ask. And there are two basic schools of thought within economics regarding the drivers of inflation or the view of inflation. Uh, One school is the Keynesian school, uh, which has its origins in in, in the British economist John Maynard Keynes. Uh, Keynesian economists would argue that inflation is driven by imbalances between supply and demand. There can be supply shocks, meaning that there is too little available, or there can be demand shocks in that demand is growing too fast for whatever reason, and then output uh, supply cannot keep up. The other school of thought among economists uh, is the one we call the monetarists. And, and their big guru t- would be, uh, I would argue, the, the uh, US economist Milton Friedman. And the monetarists would argue that inflation is essentially only about the money supply. And when there is more money in circulation in the economy that is actually needed to execute the transactions we do in the economy, that's when we get inflation. But this is all theory. And, and then trying to answer the question that you posed, if we look at data in reality... Uh, what can we see there? And uh, this was one of the purposes uh, with the report then, uh, to look at uh, what have been the drivers of previous inflation shocks and, and, and what is currently going on. And just looking at, at the, the CPI uh, increases around the world, uh, typically uh, you can see that that's right now it's, it's food, housing and energy, uh, which are driving a current very sharp inflation spike. Uh, and during the, the 1970s, for example, you had the, the soaring oil price, uh, which of course, then affected a lot of the CPI items, a lot of a lot of costs and a lot of expenditure for for people and for for business. And and the kind of soaring oil price made it a, quite a bit of a broad uh, inflation. You could say that it affected a lot of goods and services. And in this case, uh, we can see the, a much more direct impact through energy. I mean, uh, anyone who who has looked at their electricity bill uh, in, in in recent months, of course, knows this uh, very well. So just looking at the main drivers right now, we really do see the direct effects, uh, mainly from from uh, rising uh, costs in in housing, in energy, and, and uh, in food. I can personally testify to that experience. Uh, I didn't laugh when we got the December electricity bill at home, I can tell you. But this is this is a very, very interesting observation looking at the drivers of inflation. And, and, and there's also a way of looking at it in trying to distinguish between whether there is a supply or a demand driver to inflation. And there's an interesting, pretty fresh study done two and a half months ago or so by the OECD, which is trying to break inflation drivers into supply and demand. And, and, and that study obviously sees that there are certain differences between countries because the consumption mix is different in different countries, as is, for for that matter, the supply mix. But if we want to simplify a bit and just say, what is the overall observation by the OECD study? You can say that the overall pattern is that the current inflation spike that we have within the OECD is very, very clearly predominantly supply-driven. And the big culprits here in terms of driving up inflation are, of course, the reduced energy exports from Russia to Europe and reduced food and fertilizer exports from Russia, Belarus and Ukraine to 
other countries in the world. And, and, and these are the two factors that really are causing that lack of supply to push up prices in, in the areas of food and energy which are showing up in the development for CPI across the OECD. But knowing now then what, what uh, is actually driving inflation, uh, let's just briefly go through how, how do we try to control it? And, and by, by we, I mean central banks, of course. So, so what are the tools available? What have central banks been doing? And, and, and uh, yeah, uh, what can you do? About yeah. inflation. If you and I were to control it, that would be, I guess, a, a whole new uh, Nordic <laughs> on your mind call to just run through our thoughts on it. But um, I, 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 I take it uh, very, very clearly what you mean with the question. Uh, looking at the uh, toolbox for central banks, the plain vanilla tool generally used is uh, what we usually call policy interest rates, uh, the short-term interest rates which central banks set. And, and okay, it's a bit complicated, but if we try and put this very simply, what central banks do is then that they can lower rates at which banks in the banking system fund themselves short-term in the central bank. And if that happens, that makes banks offer more credit to their borrowers. They fund themselves more cheaply with the central bank and they extend more credit accordingly to their customers, the borrowers. This increases the money supply and over time that raises inflation, with everything else being equal, of course. And this would then be the uh, monetarist uh, school of thought, uh, as you explained earlier, I guess. In its purest form, yes. And then uh, there are what we could call the uh, the more kind of uh, emergency tools, uh, best known and widely used ones being uh, you know having even negative interest rates or, or quantitative easing. And of course, having a negative interest rate gives quite a strong uh, incentive. Uh, we started off with talking about uh, about uh, central banks or governments trying to give incentive to 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 um, uh, people uh, to save more money, for example. And if you have to pay money to store your your digital cash in a bank account, it's quite a strong incentive to not do so, uh, but to instead uh, spend your cash. Uh, and then quantitative easing, uh, it's simply with uh, central banks buying bonds in the financial markets. So, so being another purchaser of debt instruments, uh, in this case corporate bonds or, 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 or government bonds, uh, and this extra demand pushing up on prices, which of course then uh, results in, in uh, yields becoming lower uh, for, uh, for debt instruments. And that's pretty important because you mentioned earlier that this difficulty to plan for the long term for households and for companies is, is the biggest problem with inflation being high or unpredictable unpredictable or both. And therefore, this has been a, a tool of great interest to central banks to influence not only the short-term rates, but but the longer yields. Because if I am going to invest in my business in a new factory, I'm probably going to be more interested in what is the 10-year funding cost for that investment rather than the overnight interest rate. Right. But another policy tool for governments, not for central banks, but for governments, is of course fiscal policy. And that is public spending or taxation, which can be used to raise or to lower demand in the economy. And that, of course, can affect inflation, particularly if you ask the Keynesian economists who would see these imbalances between demand and supply, again, to be the key driver for inflation. Keynesian economists would argue that fiscal policy by governments should be used to parry macroeconomic cycles so that when things get worse, the government should step in and spend more or, or to lower taxes so consumers can spend more to help the economy. And then correspondingly, when the economy improves and strengthens, then that should be scaled back. The monetarist economists would argue that it's useless for controlling inflation because they believe that fundamentally there is no real connection between public spending and the impact on demand on on the outcome for inflation. And historical experiences, to be fair to the monetarist economists here, um, have also shown pretty clearly, if you go back again to this stagflationary period in the OECD in the 1970s and early 80s, that 
it has been tricky to scale back public spending or, 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 or tax reductions in, in, in the better times because politicians have the pressure from the voters, from the citizens to mm. maintain benefits coming from the public sector to, to, to the citizens. Uh, and therefore it has not been as straightforward as one might think theoretically to just open the faucet and then close it. Um, it has kind of remained open, which had consequences for public finances in future recessions, which has been problematic. I guess a semi-relevant uh, example could be the, the Danish protesting about the uh, proposal that they were going to remove one of the holidays. Yeah. And of course, this is not about holidays, uh, so to speak. But if you already have it, you don't want uh, one it removed. No, and, and uh, as you say, it might not be so much about religion as there being a benefit which is exactly. currently available and hard to see that you would build up a lot of enthusiasm around that being removed. Yeah. And, and the same goes with tax breaks, with lowering taxes, with, with uh, public spending in support of various industries or types of consumers or whatever it might be. So, so, so there is a case to be made uh, for fiscal policy, but there are also school of thought then speaking about the, the potential issues with it. And I know also that, that uh, even if you were to make the case that it does have an, an effect on the economy, uh, you also get the problem with, for example, timing. Uh, how long will it take to implement certain policies? Will, them, will the policies that you're implementing actually then be, be the right ones given the time it takes for them to become effective, etc.? Yeah. Uh, but then moving on to to the monetarist uh, school of thought and moving on to to uh, uh, what central banks have been doing for quite some time now. And uh, there are many that would describe this uh, use of negative interest rates and, and quantitative easing by central banks as somewhat of a fiasco as well. And given uh, the way you look at it. And it is uh, understandable uh, why quantitative easing uh, has been used to, to stabilize financial markets during severe crises. Say, for example, tw- 2008 or t- 2012 or 2020. But looking over the past 15 years, you, you could argue that a massive use of, of uh, you know big bazookas like negative interest rates or, or big QE programs uh, that have still left inflation below the, t- the targeted uh, 2% uh, rate could be described as not that much bang for the buck, right? Because you have been doing quite a lot of things that have been affecting society in quite a lot of ways while still not reaching the target that you've set out for yourself. At least not for most of that time period. For most of the time period, yeah. And and this is so interesting and it takes us into, I guess you could even say, the most juicy bit and and also, to be fair, the most uncomfortable part of this talk today. Uh, Our macro view at Nordea, uh, which I think is very well in line with the current consensus view in capital markets around us, is that the ongoing current inflation spike will continue this year. Uh, so it'll be a fairly short-lived inflation spike in 2022 and 23, which is then going to ease back to very low inflation levels from next year onwards, uh, which would be fairly close, putting it very, very simply, to the sort of 2% levels typically targeted by central banks in, in, in the OECD. And it seems like a logical scenario, uh, looking at energy and, and, and food price spikes not getting worse from here, if we're based on that, uh, and, and, you know, uh, creating this kind of second wave uh, of, of inflation. Uh, and and uh, at least uh, our view would be to say that, that uh, let's hope that this will happen going forward. Yeah, And, and uh, most of us would be quite happy if this also turns out to be what happens, so let us hope that it does. And at the same time, we want listeners to consider what would happen and how businesses would be affected if it doesn't happen. We're not saying that we don't think it will, but we simply want to highlight 
four examples of what could potentially drive inflation higher going forward. And the idea behind this is just to provoke listeners a bit and invite listeners to just do some reflection on how would businesses cope if one of these outcomes might be what lies in store rather than the current consensus and, for that matter, the current Nordea view. Mm. Yeah, one such uh, example would be the, the, the 1970s uh, stagflation scenario, as we, we talked about uh, earlier, uh, from the two oil supply uh, shocks. And, and the question, I guess, is can we completely rule out uh, a similar scenario? Uh, of course, uh, advanced economies have evolved and, and aren't as dependent on oil uh, today uh, as we were back then. But at the same time, uh, especially in Europe, we do have an ongoing going uh, energy supply shortage uh, from uh, from us having been very dependent on Russian uh, Russian gas, uh, Russian oil to some extent, uh, Russian coal and, and and with this shortfall in supply and we do still see uh, the massive effects in a similar way as we did uh, back in, in in the 70s. And in that scenario, uh, OECD inflation rose from from 5% to 14% and and stayed high for for quite a number of years. So so uh, there are some similarities even though it is a different kind of shock uh, but 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 uh, one to keep in mind. So that's the first of the four examples and the second example is what we looked into in our 2022 treasury study and that is the deglobalization of corporate supply chains that nordic large corporates are saying so very very clearly in our study that they expect in the coming few years the historical globalization of supply chains that we mentioned earlier that's been driven by the pursuit of lowest unit cost that's what companies describe to us extremely clearly but going forward supply chains will reprioritize and put much, much higher on the list in terms of what needs to be satisfied when you choose your supply chain. Availability, disruption vulnerability, and sustainability being number one. And the unit cost factor has slipped to number four on the priority list. So cost will, of course, remain a very, very important factor when deciding on your supply chain, but it's not going to be the dominant or almost a sort of single crucial factor, as has been the case for many years historically. And and if cost is no longer at the top among all those different priorities, well, that could well have consequences for costs. Supply chains might get less cheap for companies in the coming years, and that could be a driver of inflation going forward. All as equal, it creates an, an upward pressure uh, on, on prices. Very much so. And then uh, the third example we would give uh, is is uh, to to ask the kind of uh, provocative and, and rhetorical question: How uh, effective interest rate hikes uh, will prove to be in in, in combating uh, inflation? Because what you have to look at is is what type of inflation are we seeing? And just breaking down the CPI basket, what are we actually spending money on? It's very very important to note uh, that it's it's uh, a lot to, about food and housing and energy costs, and this is the areas where we do see uh, inflation and and adding then uh, you know housing and utilities or transport and, and uh, even health and education to this uh, this kind of sub basket of the cpi basket uh, you get almost 60 percent uh, of, of the the uh, cpi weights uh, and given the nature of these expenditures uh, how much um, less can we actually purchase how much can you actually reduce your electricity bill, for example? Uh, how much can you actually reduce your, your food costs? And, and then given this, uh, this, uh, the large share of the CPI basket being uh, quite sticky in nature, people need to eat, people need to have somewhere to live, people need to have, a, to, to have heating in their houses, um, hiking interest rates might not be as effective 
uh, as one would wish uh, in in actually uh, combating inflation. No, exactly. The thing the thing is, you need to live somewhere, as you said, and then you can move to somewhere cheaper to live theoretically. But the threshold to doing that is pretty high because mm. it disrupts your life to a huge extent and there might be transaction costs to, to actually execute a move to a new home. So it will probably need to be a pretty painful situation where you are more or less forced to do it if you are going to do that for economic reasons. We can trade down to cheaper foods, we can eat out less, etc. Uh, but again, there is only so much we can do. The demand for TVs or new computers might decrease a bit, but yeah. the demand for food, it, it, it's, it, it is what it is. And the fourth and final example in this talk about potential alternative outcomes for inflation in the coming years is the bloated balance sheets that central banks in the OECD have today. Uh, They've filled them with bonds purchased under the long-running quantitative easing programs. So to give you an idea, the Fed and the ECB each have between 8 and 9 trillion of dollars and euros respectively of bonds in their balance sheets and they have very publicly and very explicitly committed to winding down these uh, quantitative easing programs. So there is very, very clearly an explicit ambition to offload these bonds and and, and to... to, um, diminish the magnitude by which you buy new ones in capital markets and add to the inventory in the balance sheets. Given that the balance sheets are so stuffed with securities, this is something that could limit the room for central banks to be active in using quantitative easing or other extreme measures going forward to fight inflation, uh, but also to to embark on new sort of rescue or emergency programs of, of, of initiatives if there are new crises popping up in the years ahead. So there would have been, I think, if you just make a sort of alternative observation here, more freedom of action on the part of central banks if they had not started today with as bloated balance sheets as, as they have. So a lot of different things to, to consider uh, and, and trying then to, to uh, sum up uh, all that we've been, been uh, talking about. Uh, I guess you could say that we expect and hope that the current inflation spike will be temporary in, uh, in nature. Uh, but what we would leave the listeners with is to at least have a, have a thought about uh, the different examples that we brought up here uh, that, uh, yeah, uh, and consider a few what-ifs. So not just just uh, taking uh, the, the current prognosis from, from us or from others as granted and as something of a sure thing, uh, but more having a think of, of uh, key thing here being thinking about the corporate risk management perspective and, and trying to identify will there be any risks of, of uh, pro- protracted high inflation or additional inflation spikes as that would likely drive up interest rates and, and, and how comfortable are we as a corporate with such a scenario. That's part of corporate risk management to consider what else might happen and how it would be affected. So companies should ask themselves how high leverage you can live with, how high interest rates you can live with. If you feel that you need some good arguments for prudent leverage um, or for that matter to just familiar yourselves more with the value creation impact of having too high leverage, uh, we have a Nordea Mind report from 2021 called The Hunt for the Right Leverage that we would strongly recommend you to have a look at. Um, in there, we give you a very, very thorough fundamental analysis showing how that works. Which uh, naturally brings us to the end of uh, today's talk. It's been fun, uh, but we also have, I guess, a bit of a teaser for for, uh, the next uh, Nordia on Your Mind report, uh, which is also a little bit on the topic of leverage. Indeed. uh, We should highlight that we will explore this theme further from from a a new or a a semi-old angle. Um, Our current plan is for our next Nordia on Your Mind report in March to have the title The Financial 
Black Jacket, and that is picking up a theme from our March 2019 Nodi Mind report, the Financial Life Jacket, where we are now exploring where we find ourselves today, what kind of circumstances are we in now, looking at those trends, including uh, the, the, the bank-to-bond shift we've seen over more than a decade, um, and we'll, we'll look into leverage levels, refinancing needs, interest rate risks, all the sort of operational and practicalities relating to these issues where inflation is going to be a very, very crucial factor for deciding what level of urgency corporates will experience in reviewing this in, 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 in the coming years. So watch out for that coming up in March. And with that, uh, we want to thank you all for listening. We look forward to uh, you joining us again next time. Thank you and goodbye.